0: welcome to bread and thread a podcast about food and domestic history i'm liz
1: and i'm hazel we are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love history and making things and um we like to start by talking about what things we've been making and or baking recently which can be historical related or otherwise um before we get on to our main podcast theme so what how have you been up to
0: I don't think I mentioned it last time because it's a while since we recorded, but I finished
1: the waistcoat. You did finish the waistcoat.
0: I finished it and then I wore it to Pride. It was awesome. I felt very gender.
1: <laughs> that, that picture that, of you um, with the, because they also have a, an undercut now, um, that picture of you in the waistcoat with the undercut um, was, was extremely gender.
0: Of oh, the tie-dyed shirt as well. <laughs>
1: um, I liked it very much um, I yeah the the waistcoat uh, if if you didn't mention has uh, spiderweb lining
0: it does it has shiny spiderweb lining and then it has moons and stars on the back and the front is green wool with wooden buttons so it's like it's like a goth hobbit <laughs> is, how I th- is how I think of it
1: new style invented
0: <laughs> please Please message us on Tumblr and tell us what that aesthetic would be called. It's,
1: it's fantastic. Did you put a picture on the Tumblr? I think you did.
0: I don't think I put one on the Bread and um, Friend Tumblr, but there's one on mine.
1: Okay, there's, okay.
0: And I think there's a picture of the waistcoat on my Instagram.
2: Nice. Um, yeah, it was fabulous.
0: Uh, I've also started crushing a whale shark.
2: A, what, sorry? My, oh, a whale, shark. whale shark?
0: My tension is a little bit loose, so I need to go and buy some more blue. Um, But it also means that instead of being a little bit smaller than a newborn whale shark, it is the size of a newborn whale shark. (laughs) About 70 centimetres long.
1: A life-size baby whale shark.
0: Yes. Its name is Bridget. (laughs) I don't know why, it just felt like a Bridget. (laughs) I will update you on Bridget when we next record.
1: Fantastic. I can't wait to meet Bridget. (laughs) I love that this is just a whim. I'm just, just going to crochet a whale shark.
0: Yeah, this is this is just my life. i just like,
2: <laughs> that's a cool pattern. I'm going to get it and make it. Yeah, Living as it should be. <laughs> so what, what have you been up to apart from gallivanting?
1: Yeah, not loads because I went on holiday and then I went to a... Uh, reenactment so i didn't have a lot of time i did a lot of spinning um with the uh, hand spindle and distaff um at the reenactment but um i actually i didn't get that much done because i was too busy talking to people about the spinning um but we also we did some natural dyeing um because one of the members of my reenactment group is um yeah does a lot of dyeing and we were doing it like in clay pots on the fire, which was really cool. Um, which was, it was yeah, it's a lot simpler than I thought. You just chop up the thing and you put it in the pot, and then you put your, your fiber in the pot and it goes on the fire and it just goes. But we did some dyeing with madder, which apparently is quite difficult because it has to be the right temperature to get certain colors. But we made pink. Um, nice. Yeah, and that was really fun um oh and we did some cooking as well um i don't have oh, i don't have the recipe to hand i think it's downstairs but we made a um recipe from about 1420 i think for pot roasted mutton that um that sound very good yeah except it was lamb because it's not the season for mutton <laughs> <laughs> but um it was delicious and um We Yeah, it was my first time, like, cooking in a cauldron over the fire, essentially, and it was really cool to learn, like, how much you can do with it. Um, So it was like a, yeah, like a stew with um, lamb and vegetables and spices, and it was delicious. Oh, and I learned how to make butter. which How do you make butter? You get double cream, and it has to be room temperature, so you've got to leave it out the fridge for a few hours but you take your room temperature double cream and you put it in a bowl and then you just agitate it so you can actually just use your fingers to kind of mix it round, or you can use a spoon basically just keep mixing it until it starts to separate so like the solids start to separate from the buttermilk so it will start to go kind of grainy and then you just kind of keep mashing the solid parts until they clump together and the buttermilk comes out and then you have butter and you have buttermilk Um, and you can add a little salt if you like as well um but yeah it's so cool and it takes like literally about 10 minutes you can just do it at home so i guess
0: churning is just like a a bigger version of doing that
1: yeah yeah pretty much um yeah it is i i was so excited Um, That's
0: really cool. I can't believe you made butter.
1: I know, me too, right? <laughs> it's amazing. Um, in fact, I the next day after I got home, I did it again because I was I just wanna just wanna confirm that this actually works. And it does. <laughs> you should try it. It's so much fun. Um Yeah, so I made some butter. Um tried lots of different spices. Um, because the the cooking guy in the group has uh, like a spice chest and we're not allowed to give tasters to visitors because it's like a lot of um, paperwork to go through with insurance and stuff. So there's not that many groups that do it.
0: Oh yeah, like food safety stuff.
1: Yeah, but so we were trying to explain um, like the taste of the different spices to some people who came over. <laughs> and i ended up being the guinea pig who was like was like you try the spices and describe what they are so
0: so what sort of spices uh, long they? pepper oh
1: okay yeah i love long pepper oh, okay i'd never had it before so it was it was pretty cool to try it was kind of yeah peppery but not as like intense as pepper
0: pepper yeah, I always think of it as like a slightly more citrusy version
1: of pepper. Oh, okay. Um, but my favorite one was Grains of Paradise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was delicious. So it was it it was a good time, had. <laughs> um Yeah. That, that's about the size of it. I've been working on my quilt some more since I got back, but um slowly growing. I when I have the next row on, I'll I'll put up a picture of that. Um but it's basically just carrying on, adding more pieces. Um, yeah, that's uh,
2: that's what's been going on. So, what are we learning about today?
1: Uh, right, I would like to talk about opus Anglicanum. Which we-
0: and what is opus Anglicanum? It
1: is. Uh, it refers to a style of embroidery um, that. Uh, England was well known for producing during the Middle Ages, Uh, so literally it means English work.
0: I mean that that Uh, tracks if it's if it's English embroidery.
1: (laughs) It just sort of refers to embroidery made in English workshops during this time, Um, and it was quite famous across uh, Europe. So this this sort of came to my attention. Um, I'd sort of heard of it before vaguely, but um, I wanted to do an episode on it after having a chance meeting with somebody who I used to go to stick um, form with, um, who I just was sort of an acquaintance at the time. Um, but now we we were like chatting, and it turns out that she's about to do her PhD on Opus Anglicanum. Um, and and then we just kind of zoned out of the wider conversation and started talking about medieval textiles wider conversation and it was great and now i have another friend <laughs>
2: um
1: yeah so then i i went and found out more about it because it was very interesting uh and i thought it would make a good episode uh oh. yeah so um this style of embroidery um has roots in the anglo-saxon period so the very early middle ages um before 1066 and um even then it, it was quite famous across europe um so if you think of the Bayeux tapestry i guess that kind similar kind of style although we don't actually know where that was made or who whether it is made by like norman or english um makers
2: um
1: but it's probably like one of the more famous examples of um early medieval embroidery um although this this one um this is a really Uh, well-known correction but it's not actually a tapestry it's an embroidery because it's not woven (laughs) um but there are very very few examples surviving from the saxon period um and it was popular um into the later middle ages um So the phrase opus anglicanum actually came to describe it in the 13th century and by this point it had become known as a very luxurious type of embroidery um so a lot of the examples are really elaborate um and they can be made with gold and silver thread um and they i mean some of these are really really amazing um, a lot of the examples that we have left are ecclesiastical, so they were made for church use. Sense, um, that would
0: be like the fancy stuff that gets taken care of the best, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, like super duper fancy, maybe used more just for ceremonial occasions, so and it gets yeah, preserved better in, in like the church collection, I I imagine. Um
0: probably has a special box.
1: Yeah. Like a really fancy box, <laughs> um, but uh, we also know from um, records and, and accounts that it was uh, often purchased for secular purposes as well. Uh, so I'm going to show you a picture, and this will also be on the Tumblr.
2: But to describe this,
1: this is a chosable. A ch- chasuble? How do you. Chasuble?
0: How do it pronounce chasuble?
1: A chasuble. Okay.
0: <laughs> Just on the basis that it's the. I think it's a character name in the importance of being earnest and they pronounce it chasuble in the oh. film. <laughs> I,
1: yeah, as I said that, I, had, I suddenly realised that I don't think I've ever actually heard this word pronounced. Um, anyway, it's called the Claire Chasuble. Um and it's dated to the late thirteenth century. Um and so it's it's like a priest's vestment, isn't it? A mm-hmm. Um it's
0: like the tunic that they wear.
1: Yeah. Um and it has biblical scenes on it. Um oh, yeah, I can,
0: see, I can see the crucifixion there at the top.
1: Yeah, yeah, there he is. Um <laughs> there he is. <laughs> But um, it's also got some beasts and some beautiful flowing sort of scroll work. Very kind of kind of Celtic looking. Um and, so why is it
2: called the Claire
1: Chasuble? Uh it Oh, here we go. Because it was commissioned by Margaret de Clare, who was a member of a very noble family. Um and that's that why it's called the Pair trustable. Um, so this is this is a bit more speculation, but um i'm I'm sort of assuming then potentially it was commissioned by her as as like a gift for the church
2: yeah that makes sense It's probably to gain favor
0: with the priests for prayers and intercessions and things.
1: yeah make makes makes you look very fancy. Um but yeah it's this is in gold thread on a green. I'm I am does not say, but that looks like sort of a green velvet background. Mm-hmm. Um originally these all worked in sort of silk and metallic threads on linen, but later on it started being worked on velvets um and sort of very fine, luxurious fabrics. Um so these, these were really, really fancy textiles
0: the day embroidering on velvet feels odd to me just because of the texture of it,
1: yeah, but then if you i suppose if you imagine the texture, it's like that plushness of velvet and then the sort of metallic going onto it and
2: yeah i just I just I don't know i again I, I, I feel that. The- I feel like it would compress some of the plushness, though. Yeah, but if you're covering that, oh, I don't know. I have never had the um,
1: pleasure to see a piece of this work in person, unfortunately. Um, but there are several pieces in the Victoria and Albert Museum, mm-hmm. um, and also, okay. So this is another just that is in the uh, MET Museum in America uh,
2: so there's another one there this one is gold on a red background and we've got some more
1: what looks like biblical scenes we've got some angels Mm-hmm. Um one of them's holding a very long snaky type thing. I'm not sure what that is. It could be a scroll. That one does look
0: a lot plusher than the other one. Like I get I can see the appeal more now. Okay. I think I was just imagining it just like completely ruining the pile.
1: Well, it's not um the bits that are left blank are still gonna be plush. So I guess it's like a contrast of texture. I mean just the mm. the amount of gold on that.
0: It is a lot of gold.
1: It is quite impressive.
0: Oh, I think uh, it is a scroll. I can see writing on
2: it. Oh, cool. can't read it, but I can see writing. <laughs>
1: um, I mean, some of these um, images are so intricate. Um, I mean, when we think of medieval art, I think we tend to think of it as fairly primitive. Um, but these, I mean, just the detail and the shading that, um, that it's possible to get with thread is amazing. Mm.
0: Um, but it's still in that very medieval, I don't quite understand the proportions of the human body kind of style.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely very recognisable. Um, yeah,
0: I'll, I'll make sure to put these on the Tumblr when the episode goes up.
1: Um, yeah, because you you guys... Have really got to see this they're they're amazing <laughs> um they're very impressive um and a lot of the stitches that were used are still used in embroidery today so things like couching and split stitch um like as a, a filler stitch um there are also several copes um which is like an ecclesiastical cape sort of thing that goes over your shoulders and they're semicircles. um but yeah, those are those are really amazing.' Uh, see
2: I can find a good example. We'll go with that one um,
1: But yeah, that's a semicircle. and that is a 14th century, mid-14th century um, embroidered cope in red and gold, again, with a border along a very richly embroidered um border with different colors along the front um showing various figures and scenes
0: that's gorgeous
1: so yeah these were really professionally made um and using lots of very intricate techniques to produce these very detailed images..
2: Um, and
1: as well as church vestments. Uh, we know that the more secular kind of things that were being invaded it made could include garments, book covers, hangings, um, all sorts of things. Um, I think there's even a records, if I can find it, of, um, Costumes for a play being made in embroidery. Um, oh, where's, there there we are, okay, from the
2: National Archives, um, sorry, I just appear to have lost the bit, there it is. Um,
1: so. Okay, so in one of the account rolls for the court of Edward III, um, there is an, a record of, uh, some cloth being purchased in, uh, 1337
2: and used to make
1: some costumes for uh, the Kings games at Christmas. Um, and these were all very finely ornamented so these costumes are 15 baboons heads (laughs) made of linen Uh, 12 white buckram surcoats with red buckram sleeves decorated with gold leaves 4 buckram mantles and 15 red and white buckram tunics ornamented with gold and silver 15 hoods of the same livery a tunic of russet and 13 iron caps and then there's also recorded payments for tunics, hose and gloves for the baboons, <laughs> and uh, for the, ma- the the sort of maintenance of the masks and for people making up the costumes.
0: So I know that by games, it just means general fun, mm-hmm. and like this is probably for some sort of performance. but even so, like what? what are you doing that involves 15 baboons
1: (laughs) yeah apparently it's some kind of sort of fantasy woodland um scene that was being created but the
0: woods where the baboons
2: live yeah (laughs) i mean as far as these people know um
0: (laughs) well known in sherwood forest the baboons (laughs)
1: um but there's also um yeah these the accounts of the clerk of the great wardrobe which is a great title Mm -hmm. (laughs) just detailing um all of the i mean 600 gold leaves 1300 silver leaves two pounds of variously colored yarn 86 plain masks like there's just the scale of these um amusements i to um, what's this play i know
2: i want to see what the baboons are doing <laughs> and why, why do you need so many masks <laughs> why are they covered in gold and silver um maybe they're fancy baboons but uh, it's by
1: embroiderers um <laughs> There's also accounts of uh, again more ecclesiastical vestments for the royal chapel, uh, for the king's personal choir, for the priests who ran these chapels. Um, I one thing I really like about these inventories um, is that they well they detail everything that's in the wardrobe, the great wardrobe, <laughs> um, and a lot of the time they're made for. Um, when it's passed on to a new keeper, so there's a record of everything that's in it. Mm-hmm. And the reason they were so carefully detailed is because all this stuff was massively expensive. Um, I mean, the the cloth, the embroidery, like all of the effort that goes into that is so expensive. Um, and so these um, one one reason that we don't have so many surviving examples outside the church. Is that they were (coughs) reused and recycled? Um, So these inventories of the possessions of the households of these great um, people—you know, even even the the um, nobility—they're often recorded. um, Like these odd bits of cloth are recorded as being part of the valuable possessions, and you know there are things being so uh there we go the inventory of the estate of nicholas west bishop of ely um upon his death in 1533 uh includes recycled vestments so small pieces of red cloth of gold um an old vestment of green velvet ripped in pieces with a cross of cloth of gold so these things were still valuable and they would be cut up and made into something else. Um, <clears throat> and and that's one reason <clears throat>
2: that we don't have <clears throat> so many examples um, of, of secular embroideries. Um, but yeah, the descriptions of these things are quite amazing sometimes. So
1: we've talked about what kind of things these were made for, their uses, um, you know, even things like horse trappings, um, the stitches, their style, their materials, um, and the fact that they were very well known um, across Europe. So they were exports as well. They could be. There are records of them being purchased as diplomatic gifts by the court um but also they were being exported um to the continent Uh, the Bern Historical Museum in Switzerland um has a couple of examples of an altarpiece um which uh is is done in Opus Anglicanum um there's a lot of symbolism in it which is Pretty cool. Uh,
2: there is also,
1: um, I think in the records of the the papal records, um, bit. um, so an inventory of twelve ninety five from the Vatican lists one hundred thirteen pieces made in England, um, which is the the largest of any particular country's output uh, there. Um, And we have records of orders being made um, from across the continent. So it's clearly
0: well thought of if people are getting that rather than local embroidery.
1: Yeah, it's a famous product and that's reflected in how it's being made. So, um yeah, going on to talk about the people who are actually making this. Um, there can be an assumption with te- textiles and embroidery um, that it's quote unquote women's work." Um, and it, this this kind of work is associated with nunneries, um, where um, the the people living there, you know have time to devote to to this kind of craft and that's that's true Um, there are records of
2: um some
1: makers uh in nunneries so for example um there's an embroidered book binding um of a psalter from the 14th century um where we actually know who it's probably made by. It was a nun called Anne de Felbriger, who was in uh, the convent of minoresses in um, Brizyard, Suffolk. So some of it was coming out of the nunneries, um, but mainly um, when we get to like the the golden age of this kind of production. It was being made in dedicated workshops in London. So professional workshops. Wow. Um, by professional embroiderers. And and, just looking
0: at it, it does look like something you would have to just spend your entire day on.
1: Um, uh, well, definitely. And these like the amount of time it takes to complete these. Um, you're you're going to want several people working on it at once. To get them done, some of these pieces are are so large and detailed.
2: Um
1: And very professionally made. So to work with the metal threads, you're going to need some training. Um, it's they often had um precious stones or pearls added. um and they use a couching technique where the couching stitches were on the back rather than on top. Can you explain
0: what couching is?
1: Um, Oh, yeah. So couching is when, let's say, you want to add some gold thread, which is quite thick, and you want it to make a smooth line. um, You will, instead of um, threading a needle with the gold thread, um and trying to pull that through the fabric you would thread your needle with a very fine thread that usually matches the color of the the thread you're trying to couch and you will lay the gold thread along on the fabric in the shape that you want it to be in and then you would stitch over it with your fine thread So you're um, holding it on with this other very fine thread, much less noticeable. Um, And so that way you can get a very smooth line or or curve. You can get the shape that you want in your thicker thread. Um, But from a distance, you can't see that other thread holding it on. Um, But this technique they're using... um, has the couching stitches on the back uh, of the material rather than on top which makes it more hard wearing um which is very interesting um and then using things like a very fine split stitch for the fine details um using colored silk um so this this was something that you would have to train for quite a long time to be able to do so it makes sense that it was being made in places like professional workshops and um you know nunneries where it might be something that time could be dedicated to um and we have the names of some of the london embroiderers um so a lot of them were men the professional embroiderers um so we have some names Robert Ashcombe, Thomas Carlong, William Courteret, and Alexander Le <laughs> There's some French names in there as well. Um, there is one piece um, that is actually signed, made by a nun, called Joanna Beverley. Um, and that piece is now in the Victorian Albert Museum. Um, but yeah, a lot of these professional embroiderers were men. Um... Which which sort of That's wild. Um yeah, goes goes against some of our modern um assumptions perhaps. Um but actually a lot of professional embroiderers um across the world today are men. Um I'm thinking particularly of some of the incredible um embroideries made in India um are made by professional male embroiderers.
0: Oh yeah, it's just I think it's because you associate it so much with medieval women. It's a surprise, but then I guess you also have to consider like working outside of the home.
1: Yeah, exactly. I it's like I think it's similar to a lot of the um, <laughs> medieval and um, crafts where. It becomes more of a, a male thing when it becomes a profession. So like weaving, um, as well, I suppose, when when the um, bigger looms are introduced, and it becomes something that um, is no longer a cottage industry. it's It's something that's done uh, outside the home and with um specific sort of training and tools and and then it becomes a male-dominated profession um so yeah these these um london workshops um seem to be absolutely flourishing um until the 14th century and two things happen in the 14th century um, that sort of bring to an end this period of like flourishing English embroidery work. One of them is the Black Death. Um
0: it ruined everything,
1: yeah, it it didn't didn't do great things for anyone's economy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of people died, um who might have bought it, but also a lot of people who had the knowledge would have also died. Uh, And then also there was the Hundred Years' War. Um,
0: Also not great.
1: Yeah, also not great for commerce (laughs) Um, and art. Uh, I have to assume
0: especially all those people ordering it from the continent, if the English Channel is a war zone.
1: Yeah, that's not going to help. Plus, like, a lot of the patrons who might be buying it, maybe more of their spending is going to military so um yeah and then and then just sort of general changes in fashion as well um all of which (laughs) um spelling the end of major production um
2: so that that'll do it really a war and disease are just no good for anyone
1: Mm, the 14th century um did i say 13th century before sorry 14th century um bit of an upheaval
2: bit of a um, funny time for Europe, generally.: You heard it here first.: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Um, so yeah, that that is um, a little bit about uh, Opus Ang- Anglicanum. Um, the V A has uh, a great piece on this on their website. Um, and so I'll, I'll put a few links on the Tumblr, um, if people like to find out more.
0: Yeah, well, we can put a link to the V&A page in the episode description.
1: Um, yeah, because there are, and there's, there's quite a few books about it, um, which would be very interesting to have a look through. Um, I've, I've just sort of gone for a general, um, what is this thing? kind of explanation. Um but there is um yeah there's there's loads more. Um if people are interested or would like to have a go. Cause I'm thinking it might be fun to to have a little go at this kind of style. I don't think I'm gonna be using, you know, pearls and golden threads and velvet or anything, but
0: maybe some some DMC metallic.
1: Yeah, that might be as close as we'll care. <laughs> Um, I, I have not completed a seven-year apprenticeship in embroidery, <laughs> but I think I can have a go. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that is Opus Ang- Anglicanum.
2: RPG ideas should be good,
0: right? But what this podcast supposes is, maybe they don't have to be. The Probably Bad podcast brings you ideas like dire humans, fight your GM in real life. And what if there is an eye laser man Listen to the Probably Bad podcast.
2: Available everywhere podcasts exist, and some places where they don't.
1: So what is our local larder for today?
0: So it's one that I saw mentioned um, on Tumblr, actually, and I was just kind of, what on earth is that? Um, So I had
2: a little look at Mormon Funeral Potatoes. Okay, that is a title. So, you probably know that in various parts of the US,
0: there's a big thing of casseroles. Okay. Um, around sort of the Midwest and
2: the, a little bit further west towards sort of the Utah area. Yeah, they're also called hot dishes, I think. They sort of generally
0: a starch, a meat, and some tinned soup baked in a casserole dish.
2: hmm But yeah, I was just very intrigued by the phrase funeral potatoes.
1: That is an intriguing phrase. What makes them funeral potatoes? I imagine it's it's a potato dish made specifically for funerals
0: it's not specifically for funerals but it's part of this tradition that you get in a lot of i mean a lot of close-knit communities in general Mm -hmm. quite often if someone is bereaved someone people will bring them food or maybe the wake will be kind of a potluck situation so that the, the people who've lost someone don't have to organize catering that makes sense and in these areas of the U.S., that is quite often a lot of these hot dishes. Mm-hmm. And once you bring in Mormons, you get an even more close-knit community just by dint of the way that the Mormon religion works.
2: Mm-hmm. And then you combine that with, apparently, during the Great Depression, um people were encouraged
0: to have at least three months of food in their pantries in case of various disasters, which led to having a lot of tinned foods or just general foods that would last a long time, like potatoes, just in at all times.
2: But eventually that stuff is going to need using up, like things do still go off. Yeah, so, yeah. If you leave potatoes long enough,
1: they go a bit green, don't they?
2: So in the in
0: the Mormon areas, again, especially Utah, but it also pops up in uh, places like Idaho and Wyoming.
2: Mm-hmm. You get
0: this specific dish known as funeral potatoes, um, also known as party potatoes or those potatoes. <laughs> They're just so you ubiquitous know the ones.
1: that That's just... If you say potatoes, it's those potatoes. <laughs> um, party potatoes sounds a bit nicer than funeral potatoes.
0: Yeah, I mean, isn't a funeral just a sad party? Yeah. <laughs> I say never having attended a funeral. Um, but that's
2: the impression I get. You're pretty much right, yeah. But apparently... Um, this specific recipe under the name Funeral
0: Potatoes spread from... There was a Mormon Relief Society in the 50s and 60s which had a cookbook. There's kind of, you know, a lot of people are struggling. We've had the Depression, which is when we, you start getting cookbooks made by... I mean, all sorts of groups. Um, there's a Mennonite one as well, I believe. Mm-hmm that are basically, here are some cheap recipes that'll fill you up and taste all right. But this Relief Society cookbook in the mid-20th century is what really spreads the term funeral potatoes for this dish, which is... The, the recipes i found are generally diced potatoes,
2: a tin of cream of chicken soup, Mm-hmm. Cheese, maybe some butter, and quite often topped with cornflakes. Interesting.
0: Which, like, to a British palate sounds very odd. Yeah. But, I mean, I'd be willing to try it. I think the, the combination of crunch with, like, quite, I have to imagine, quite mushy potatoes seems intriguing.
1: I mean yeah that that sounds all right. Um it I mean cheese potatoes yeah fine. I do I am very intrigued by what seems to be the American habit of putting cans of soup in things.
0: It is it's not just in the Mormon corridor as well. Like so many so many times I've tried to find recipes for various American dishes. Um chicken pot pie comes to mind. Mhm. And then found just a ton of recipes that use tinned soup and they often just say one tin or one can but I don't know what size of can they
1: mean <laughs> I don't know if it's like uh, the similar kind of thing to where we would use stock
0: well because it's got a lot of stuff in though, doesn't it the tinned soup because it's got I mean cream of chicken soup specifically You've got mm-hmm. stock, you've got cream, you've sometimes got actual pieces of chicken and you've got yeah. seasoning.
1: And I guess it thickens things up. Mm. So yeah, I can say, I mean, I'm not like, I don't think it's bad. Um, one of my... Um... Like I'm,
0: I am in no way judging. Yeah. It's just, it's just frustrating I've when had... you want a recipe for something and you don't know what tin of soup they mean.
1: I've had the green bean casserole with a can of mushroom soup in it. Um, which one of my old housemates made for us. And, you know, it was pretty good. It was, I, w- I, was, I, w- I was surprised,
2: <laughs> but it was good. So, yeah, um, and it, it's, hmm. it's very much
0: spread outside of the Mormon areas, this specific funeral potatoes recipe as well. I guess just as people move around. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's Mormons all over the place, not mm-hmm. just in Utah. And yeah, I just find it intriguing that this dish called Funeral Potatoes um, (laughs) is this huge thing. Like, when the Winter Olympics were held in Salt Lake City, the official Winter Olympic pin was a Funeral Potatoes pin. Oh, no way!
2: So it's, it's a cultural phenomenon. It's that well known, okay. Yeah, that is that is mormon funeral potatoes okay yeah that's i'd i'd give it a go sounds hearty and cheap i mean hearty and cheap describes so much delicious food it does it does so if you want to let us know your experiences
0: of funeral potatoes (laughs) You can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com
1: If you have a funeral potato badge you'd like to send us, Uh, you can also find us on Tumblr, at breadandthread. And
0: And if you want to support us, for approximately the cost of all the ingredients of funeral potatoes, (laughs) i.e. £5 a month, um, you can get access to recipes, and for just £1 a month, which... Might get you a tin of cream of mushroom soup, depending on where you're shopping. Thank oh, you, potatoes. Um, you can get access to a Discord server where we chat about food, history,
2: crafts, general nonsense. It's just a nice little community.
1: Yeah. And who knows, if you're doing really well, you might be able to become a patron of us. And make funeral potatoes.
0: I mean, let's not go wild.
1: (laughs) That's when you know you've made it, right? (laughs) Uh, So thank you for listening. And we will see you next time for another episode of Historical Chatting.